with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we are speaking with Nick Hayes, who is the Chief Data Science Officer of Cumberland Heights. But before we engage with him, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So I've known Nick for some time, and he was actually one of the first people I ever met at Cumberland on my first tour there, I don't know, four or five years ago, probably at this point. Uh, Very impressive and one of the sharpest people that you will meet in the field and probably one of the leading experts when it comes to building and implementing data systems that are native to a provider. As we all know, there's not a lot of uh, patient outcomes tracking or even data analytics that have been built into the behavioral health space and SUD in particular. And so Cumberland Heights has led the way. They have some of the best tracking. They have uh, an annual report that they release so you can see examples of what they're doing, what they're looking at, but it's, it's very, very sophisticated above and beyond what I think any other provider has really built until this point. There's a lot of other tools coming online third-party applications and data tracking systems that we've had on this podcast before. But Nick and his team over at Cumberland Heights were the first really internal system to be built, at least that I'm aware of. And so I'm super excited to have him on today. He is so intelligent. We will walk through what it takes to build an internal data team and data system and data visualizations. We'll talk around some of the challenges and how to really understand the value of that data and some of the outcomes that Cumberland Heights has gleaned from their initiative so far. So with that, let's hear from Nick and jump in. Hey, Nick, really appreciate you coming on. You want to talk to us a little bit about yourself, your role at Cumberland Heights, and what you guys are are doing from a data science perspective? Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I've listened to a couple of these episodes, and they're good. It's a value add. So um, humbled to have been asked to contribute to your platform and talk a little bit about sort of my role and uh, the work that we're doing here at Cumberland Heights. I so I'm the chief science officer at Cumberland Heights Foundation. And um, really what that means is that my teams are responsible for all of our data and research related initiatives system wide. So um, pragmatically, that's, you know, everything between quality management, traditional IT, development IT, medical records and our emerging research institute. So we focus on becoming a feedback informed organization broadly and trying to leverage information and data to tell unique stories throughout our enterprise, largely grounded in, you know, how our treatments are affecting our patients over time. Well, I really was excited to bring you on. And this has been a long time coming because you guys have one of the most impressive teams and impressive data sets. I mean, you know, when we were working together last year, what you guys have in place is so much better than anything else that we've seen. <laughs> so <laughs> I just really yeah, want to give you, you kudos, right, for, for that because it's amazing. So can you walk us through actually kind of starting that journey? Because when you first came on, this was brand new. No one else in the field was doing it. So what was it like coming on? And then how does it look now? How has that evolved over time? Yeah, good question. We actually, it's it's interesting over the past, uh, I've been here for four and a half years. And over that time, you've created more and more external relationships with peer organizations and other professionals, what have you. And I get this question a lot is, is how, how did you guys take that from root to fruit? You know, we see the output in terms of the papers and whatever else, but you know, how does that work pragmatically in your organization? And, and again, how did you guys accomplish that? Cause it seems like an expense that to be honest with you, 
a lot of organizations, even Cumberland Heights, might not be able to afford, right? And so really the focus for us was on strategy. And um, I started at Cumberland kind of on an island, to be frank with you. I, I had finished up graduate school or was wrapping up and I had some relationships with some staff here and got connected with the leadership team here. And the focus at that time was, hey, Nick, you know, we know you professionally. We've observed some of your work throughout graduate school, which was Nick really focused um, on uh, measurement in psychology broadly. And I became fascinated by that, really the lack of standards that we have in our field. I can talk more about that if you'd like. But so I came on, like I said, on an island uh, in a director role, so a mid-management role in our organization um, in charge of uh, research, period, full stop. And so it was sort of a team, a singular team of one. And in the beginning, it was very cross-sectional, right? So sort of coming in and, and working with other stakeholders in the organization like quality or IT to answer unique questions that different stakeholders or leaders had, you know, maybe that was admissions or business development focused, but generally in the beginning, it was all business intelligence focused that I know you're familiar with. So like, who are our patients quantitatively, right? You know, what's their history? Uh, what's their ethnicity, maybe numerical age, whatever it is, what treatments are they being provided as a function of maybe how that's collected in our, in our medical record, which is, you know, length of stay as a function of level of care. And then what outcomes do we observe? So those are like those three questions are, are the, that, way you can kind of organize your thoughts around how to measure uh, your practice in psychological science is really the foundation of everything we do. Who are our patients? What treatments did, were they provided? And what outcomes do we observe? In, in any treatment science, that's fundamental, right? That's the first place to start. And so that's where I started and really just interested in doing some like pretty simple ANOVAs or T-tests, like group mean differences, like you know, do patients who leave prematurely have a tendency to experience adverse negative um outcomes post-discharge and and you know maybe are there unique predictors associated with folks who are leaving prematurely and there were and we were able to sort of apply that sort of where the rubber meets the road in a live clinical setting to to make change and then observe those changes were taking place and so that's how I started and then uh, I guess I was here for about a year Nick and I was asked to stay on uh, further and take more of a responsibility from a leadership role and I'm telling you, we really sat down as a team and said, okay, Nick, you know, we really like the work that you've done for our organization. You know, the, the clinical teams and, and the other auxiliary staff have really gained a lot from sort of better leveraging our, our, our data um, to inform our processes. You know, what would it look, what do you think we should change, you know, organizationally to, to accelerate this? And I said, well, every team that has something to do with data probably needs to be a part of the same team. And here's why I mean, just as you mentioned before, before we started the podcast, you know, often an organization of our size, especially organizations that have been around before there were computers, <laughs> as an example, right? Like these big legacy providers that have legacy processes, oftentimes their departments are siloed and it's not nefarious. It's not like anybody's making decisions, you know, to create, you know, to not be the best that they can be, right? It's just over time, Departments become siloed, resources to be, become siloed, and thus goals become conflictual naturally. And so we were observing that in the example would be like a traditional quality quality management department versus information technology. You know, these two teams reported to two different leadership team members. And so their resource they were competing for the same resources, right? And oftentimes their goals weren't synergistic. And so that was really the big change that we made strategically is that all of all of those teams became um, one team right together. And we created a lot of synergy related to our strategic plan. And in the beginning, it was focused on sort of um, solidifying the foundation of our database. And um, before I got here as an organization, we had made some progressive investments in both the hardware and the people that it takes to effectively manage your data internally. So if you don't mind, bear with me, you know, organizations in this space traditionally have isolated agreements with applications that handle their, their data, right? Yep. So an example is like a medical record. It's isolated. We manage that relationship and we get data out based on, you know, some reporting tool that they give you. Same thing can be said for a CRM or a call center or maybe your finance system. So that was greatly limiting our ability to tie that information together in order to answer whatever questions that you have, right? 
And so what that takes is you have to have a database management platform of some kind, generally internally, that you can pull those data down, wrangle them together, wash the data, and then use them throughout your enterprise. And so we do that through a SQL environment. But as you and I both know, you know, paying for SQL is not cheap, you know, and then paying the IT staff that you need, like the systems administrators and the developers to maintain active integrations with all of your applications so that you can pull. In fact, the 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 server that holds all of our data, we we have both a SQL on-prem solution for those that are know what I'm talking about. And then we have a cloud version. So that's actually on the other side of my office wall. And that those two things having the infrastructure here on site at our headquarters and the staff along with departmentally creating synergy that really created the seeds if you will for our data systems to really mature and thus our programs to really really greatly benefit appreciate sharing all of that there's a lot to touch on there why don't we start, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> why don't we start with the goal? So as you consolidate the team and say, hey, look, we're gonna focus on data science, information technology as it relates to outcomes, what structure did you put in place of saying why are we consolidating this team and what is this team designed to accomplish? Yeah, good question. How do you get everybody to sing from the same hymnal <laughs> and and buy into a singular vision? Real it took a lot of time. And well, really, when we started pulling those teams together, just the natural synergy of being around each other. And and honestly, like it's good old fashioned implementation science. You know, none of this is novel to my mind or our organization. Right. It was just slowing down long enough to have everybody in the same room and saying, all right, what are you guys focused on? And y'all and y'all and y'all. And why are you focused on all that? And so sort of cutting that all down to the root and starting from scratch and saying, all right, how is the health of our data system? What do we need to fix to ensure that we're able to answer the eventual long-term questions that we want to answer? So I'll give you an example. The first thing that I knew I wanted to tackle was business intelligence. I mean, you'd be shocked, maybe not you, Nick, but, but you know, you'd be shocked the, the, um, these organizations that have a lot of resources, you know, the, some of the biggest players in our field don't have a mature data science team, or really an understanding of how to leverage their information internally because of that silo effect, whether yep. it's grounded in the in the application or their teams. And so how it was manifesting here is our business intelligence reporting four and a half years ago was entirely driven on paper. And what I mean by paper is Excel, right? <laughs> and so in fact, yeah. we had full-time employees that we paid every month. They would pull data down from the medical record by hand in a CSV file and pull it down from the CRM by hand in the finance system by hand. And they would pivot these tables in Excel <laughs> and create create visualizations in Excel to answer these basic questions about business intelligence. So we're not even talking about outcomes or research or any kind of significance to us, but like just foundationally how, and they would save that. They'd wrangle all that, they'd save it, and they'd send it out in an email. Right. So just imagine sort of like, you know, in terms of the capability of technology these days, you know, by way of dynamic reporting, like all the how laborious that was. And so the literally the first project we all worked on together was burning that down. The questions we had were all valid, you know, that had been developed over a 50 plus year history about, you know, you know, having an understanding of event discharge and length of stay and, you know, patient journey throughout our health system. All that's great. These are great questions. But we need to stop and we need to create a platform by way of people being able to answer these questions dynamically. And so pragmatically, what that means, Nick, is that we started creating dashboards in Power BI, which is a visualization tool. Before we did that, we had to get with our development IT team and saying, hey, our database sources need to be cleaned in a certain way. So that went and we have to have these integrations with our medical record and our CRM so that the data are flowing into our databases naturally, every single day actually, right? As changes are being made, no one has to touch anything. And thus then these reports that are all driven by access control based on your role in the organization are also being updated automatically and naturally. And so, you know, we were able to reallocate those FTEs in other areas that we needed to focus on to solve for other problems. But that was an example of sort of the exponential growth we were able to have related to the maturity of our database systems that I think really paid off. 
And now, as you've seen, because you've worked with us, you know, we have a huge library of resources for people to consume. It's, it's, it's really interesting because staff now become these pseudo researchers, you know, because they have a question. I wonder if patients who are scoring higher on a trauma assessment have a tendency to do X, Y, or Z. Well, they go into Power BI and because the reports are dynamic and they can filter, they just go and check it out. You know, they don't need our research staff necessarily, right? They don't need our quality staff. And so um, it, it's really been a value add to the organization. And also we've eliminated where, you know, sometimes there's data infighting, you know, where one group brings data, another group brings data, whose data is correct or valid. None of that happens anymore. It's all it's sort of one source of truth. It's been really beneficial for us. So let's unpack some of that. And I just want to step back a little bit and provide some guidance maybe for people to understand some of the basics here. So you've got a couple different components and this main problem that happens from a data warehousing standpoint is like you said, differences in the data. It's not cleaned. It's not washed. We're not comparing apples to apples. Right. So if I've got the EMR is reporting something around insurance reimbursement per patient, well, the way that the accounting software records that revenue in is different. Maybe it's displayed differently. Maybe it's calculated differently. Maybe EMR is per patient and accounting software is per month, right? Right. So what you have to do is create a database, whether that's SQL or you know using Amazon Web Services or whatever you want to use, put it all together, but then you have to standardize it. So do you want to maybe just touch on that a little bit and how, how complicated that is? Because it might sound easy, but it is not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a great point. And it goes back to sort of my points about resource allocation and, and on your team, you know, like, it's one thing to have the hardware, whether that's a cloud version or an on prem on premise, sorry, so it just means that it's physically on your site um, solution, where your your data are able to l literally be stored, right? But then you've got to have we, we call them um, data plumbers. <laughs> so they're basically developers, back end developers, they are. And their job uh, uh, remains to make sure that all the pipes are flowing, that they're tight, that there are no hiccups as the data flow, both through all these active integrations that are external to our enterprise, as the data come here and arrive, and then how it's washed. And so how we determine how data are washed and or how they're mapped so that sort of you can pivot, like you were talking about the finance data with the medical record data, which are often you know, before we started on this, you're right, the, the, um, the data were different. And so we would have discussions all the time, the CFO's team would have data, and the chief clinical officer's team would have data, and they were competing against who, whose data are valid, right? This is a natural problem that I see. So what we're able to do is pull both of those uh, sources into the same environment, SQL, and map it appropriately based on a guy, a set of rules or logic. So it sounds complex. I would say it's actually kind of simple if you have the staff. So what that means is you get those stakeholders in a room and you say, how do we define length of stay? That's a basic question. Let's start there, right? Well, we define it as receiving a certain number of clinical hours within 24 hours. Okay. So the first day you admit, is that a zero or a one, right? So it's making all of those type of decisions. It, when you discharge or transfer levels of care, do you count that as a full day or a half day? Well, it depends. Why does it depend? Well, if they're here for over 24 hours, it's a full day. Okay. And then it creates a bed charge at the residential level of care. So literally we are taking, we had to go through this process, which is laborious to take notes on the logic of your rules. Think of it as like codifying your policies and procedures, right? And once you do that, you know, whatever team of developers you have can go and execute basically a mapping table that, uh, again, codifies that logic into code. And then it's all dynamic. Then you're just nurturing the system. And if you make changes, you can maybe tweak your code a little bit, but you're sort of off to the races. So we're any organization that's interested. We've certainly we're, we're no one owns algebra, which is what we say around here. Right. <laughs> There's no secret to be had, you know, but we're totally happy to share any insight based on our experience of how kind of this works in our health system. But it really takes sort of having a champion. That's probably the first place to start having a champion or organization that has a vision for, for pulling this off. So a couple pieces there, right? There has to be some agreement around standardizing the data, whether you count a step down mm -hmm. as a half day or a full day, but at the end of the day, it doesn't 
really matter, at least this is the way I look at it. You can add your comments, but as long as it's standard, as long as you set that right. standard in place and then are comparing apples to apples, it doesn't really matter around the edges and the small little nuance. You just compare the same thing all the time, set that standard and move forward. Would you agree with that? Yeah, a hundred percent. And your work, um, I mean, Circle Social did work with us. Gosh, Nick, that's over a year ago now. Actually, I think it was a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Related to um, KPIs and kind of getting us started and evolved related to some KPI focus that we had at the time related to specific projects. But um, that, that's a great example. It reminds me of that time because I remember us having dialogue as a larger team of like, well, what should the KPIs be, right? And it, it reminds me of these definitions. Well, it. it, it it doesn't, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter in the sense that like, you just need to start measuring something so that you can improve it. Right. And there is right, a, correct. you should expect like, hmm, this is a better way to say it. Focus on your process, not your content. Right. So create the vehicle to which you're able to collect these data, mine these data, wrangle these data together. And your content, of course, will always iterate and change over time. In fact, you should expect it to, right. You're never going to be done. And importantly for us, we take the posture of the vehicle that we've created and we continue to build will help us answer questions that we don't even know to ask yet. You know, like it would be it would be a mistake to think that we have all the knowledge you know, or insights, you know, related to processes that patients go through that 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 would be might be the same as they are five years from now, 10 years after that. No, you know, the, the things evolve. Our practices change. And so we're very focused on that process and that vehicle. So I, I totally agree with you. It's just about finding a starting place. And for folks that might or might not be listening, maybe that's just Nick and I's friends, but um, <laughs> all, all that, you know, organizations of all sizes can do this work. You know, you don't have to have a really robust team of FTEs. You don't have to spend a lot of money on technology. Um, there are ways and strategies that you can adopt small, starting small, one step at a time. Maybe that's just medical record. Maybe that's just your CRM to pull it down into a visualization tool and be able to sort of use it more effectively. I want to make sure people hear that too. So let me give one concrete example that I think resonates with a lot of executives is on the marketing side, there's often a fight between business development and say the digital marketing team or the outsource vendor. Mm-hmm. And they will go back and forth about what qualifies as a BD admission versus digital admission. Blah, 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 blah. So uh-huh. What we always say is set a standard and then it doesn't matter, right? So if you have the standard, is there going to be noise in that data? Are there going to be some things attributed to the wrong place per se? Yes, but who cares because you've set the standard. And so once you've set the standard, that's how you build your KPIs. That's how you build your compensation or performance recognition or whatever you want to do. You know, so if that standard and baseline is in place, then it no longer matters. But if you keep varying the criteria by which you allow something to be classified as this or that, that's where it gets confusing and there's frustration and conflict between the staff. So it's not just about the data perspective and comparing apples to apples, which is really important. But in that example, you can see how it has a very real world impact on the teams and and the smoothness of the operations. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And the other thing that we see too, Nick, I don't know if you see this is, is sometimes organizations take, take the stance of like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And so I've seen examples related to event discharge where like, where certain categories of event discharge aren't going to be included in the ratio for completion status, right? As an example, well, that's not really valid, right? We, we should, we should be shooting for having the greatest amount of insight on the reality of what's taking place throughout our enterprise, you know, or, yeah. or throughout our organization. And the same can be said with BD or, or house accounts. Like we, we actually had this discussion with you a year ago, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, better codify those accounts to have greater visibility about where our spend is going and our referral sources and who, who we might be wanting to focus on more and all that. And, you know, in the beginning, the BD team was very, you know, reserved on, well, I, I want to make sure that I'm getting credit, right, for the work that I'm doing and, and, and all of that. And so it kind of washes out in the end, right? Because yes, although in the it beginning, it looks like, oh, you're placing all these and we, we call them house accounts. You know, so basically that's friends and family, you know, a a program like ours that has had an impact in our community for a while tends to have a lot of these type of accounts. You know, I mean, the majority of our admissions as a function of 60 percent approximately, you know, are attributed to house account activity. 
right? Well, what is happening to the other 40%? So in the beginning, it looked like we were taking a lot of the air out of the tires of business development. But now they're some of our largest advocates. They're in the CRM because they want to have this clarity over their activity within their team. And they've seen that on the back end year over year. Now we're able to make you know budgeting decisions around this activity that otherwise, to be frank with you, we weren't doing at Cumberland Heights four exactly. years ago. Like yep. we were making decisions about business development and marketing spend based on anecdote, which, right. hey, we've got some people around here that have a strong gut, my friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> they make sure. a lot of right decisions. And, and I think there's a strength to that. Certainly folks that have worked in the field a long time, they know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is giving them more tools to make even more um, with greater specificity uh, better decisions, you know, essentially making those teams look better over time, you know? So I'm with you hundred, 110%. Uh, yeah. That's a whole interesting conversation. Right. But that is, you know, when people have a really strong gut feeling, that's just an unconscious templated algorithm, right? Your brain's mm-hmm. taking in all that data and it's processed that data. It's come to an answer of what that pattern should represent. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's very off if you don't have enough mm-hmm. data or the right data. And so what you're basically doing is you're taking that away from the black box of, you know, whatever person's life experience is, moving it into a quantifiable data warehouse and a dashboard that you can compare apples to apples. And you're not saying, yeah. you know, Jim, how did you come up with that? He's like, I don't know. It's just what I, I'm pretty sure is right. <laughs> right, right. Versus you being able to pull the data. So I, I like that example. All right. So a couple other just small pieces. So we've got the data warehouse on the back end. We've started to clean and wash that data. Now, a couple things is you said there's a visualization component, right? So that is your power BI uh, that just takes all that data and allows people to do a trend line or analyses, pie charts, line graphs, whatever you want to do. But versus Excel, one, pivot tables are a nightmare. So you get rid of that. <laughs> and the riddle um, of error. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And then two, you can just compare it over time all the time, right? So if I want to compare three years ago to now, assuming that you started the data back then, you can just pull that up versus the Excel, you would have to go back and back and back and so that's right um, a lot of advantage there and then something else i think it's important for maybe people to understand is the fact that you've got to connect the components right so we have to connect the accounting software to the server or the data warehouse we've got to connect the emr to it and that because it's updated so let's take kipu as an example right kipu updates their code well when they update their code it may affect the way that you're plugging Correct. that data in that's so right that breaks it and then, so you have to have someone on staff. So I just want to make it clear to people that this is not a one and done thing. You can't just set it up and That's let right. it run forever. You actually need people that are maintaining the database so that it continues to be clear and that the data is validated. So you might pull the data in, but then maybe for some reason, instead of pulling in a full month, it's only pulling in 30 day windows. And so every That's time right. a 31 day window, it's wrong. So That's right. you need someone to double check that what gets pulled in is right. So just just kind of any comments around. No, you're exactly right. It's a, it's a living, breathing organism, right? And the other thing that you alluded to, once you pull the data in, sometimes you notice anomalies, right? Yep. And so you kind of have to like work backwards to say, all right, because sometimes it's not a code issue. Sometimes it's a process issue, right? In terms of how your teams are maybe uh, implementing documentation in the medical record, right? So it's not even... It's not even a medical record change or any of that that you alluded to, which is all correct and valid. It's like, oh, there's all, there's all these examples I can think of, of of where this invited us to create process improvement practices. What one that I'll share is we call it gardening, right? Because we have a garden, you have to be some semi consistent with getting out there and weeding the weeds in your garden for it to survive and thrive. And so when I first started on this four and a half years ago. We were pulling data down, and I noticed that over 90% of our ethnicity data were missing for patients. And so I went to the leadership team, you know, kind of just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and, and, or maybe first I went to the technology team. Hey, what, why is that? Well, we've, we've always had a problem with this. Well, why is that? So I went to other, other teams and stakeholders. Well, it turns out that folks were uncomfortable with having those conversations with certain patients, you know, from a cultural humility perspective. And so it was an example uh, a lightning rod example of, okay, we need to inform, we need to create feedback loops in our healthcare. This is not just reporting and then looking at a visual. We need to create these active feedback loops and we call it our gardening program. And so basically based on a set of rules of what's important for us year over year, that changes because we get better and we want to focus on something else. 
we decide what's going to be sort of calculated on this gardening report. And then naturally our system or organically or dynamically, the system will send out automated updates via email to certain stakeholders in the organization. Hey, there are certain data that are missing or there are certain errors associated. Some medical records do this uh, built in, but um, there's certain pieces of document documentation that you need to complete, um, fill in certain fields. And that, Nick, has greatly increased the validity of our data downstream. So it's all these upstream processes that we've installed, basic kind of think about along the sides of, uh, of, 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 a, of a mountain, if you will, where as the data are trickling down into our systems, we don't have to worry about cleaning or you know, list-wise delete, deleting a bunch of data because it's invalid. Now we're sort of taking the proactive stance of cleaning it as it comes through our health system. And folks are hungry for it because we have these feedback loops. We, we, we kind of um, joke that now our, our system is like Burger King, right? Everybody wants it their way <laughs> as a function of data, <laughs> right? And so we want, we, want to, we want to be giving everybody as much access as we can. So these interesting process improvement strategies have sort of emerged as a result of that, which is just, um, it's, been, um, it's been exciting. I really like that gardening metaphor. I'll, I'll probably steal that going forward. Please do. Because it yeah. is really important. Yeah, let me let me think of a, a marketing example maybe. So we'll sometimes go in with a client and they'll say, okay, well, our, our cost per call is you know $50 off of Google ads. And we're like, that's impossible for commercial insurance. That doesn't happen. <laughs> right. And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. And then we go in and look and like, sure enough, but they're tracking every single call that comes in, including the hangups, including the two-second calls, right? I'm like, oh, okay, you're tracking every call, not... 60 second or qualified calls or right. we'll see something like admission cost is really low from a particular channel and we're like that doesn't sound possible you know because we have a lot of data and we we know what the ranges are and if it's under range we're like never seen that before highly unlikely but let's take a look and we'll go in it'll be something where like maybe they're running a branded google ads campaign so what's happening is they're getting admissions off of people that were searching for their name anyway and they're putting a bunch of budget towards that so it looks really good right it's like, it looks like these cheap google ads admissions are coming in but in reality you would have gotten those anyway as people were searching for your name and you were actually just paying extra that you didn't need to pay so, you know, in the data world, we like to say garbage in, garbage out. So it's not just how you clean and wash the data once you have it, but it's the inputs coming in and how the team is inputting that data or the parameters around which they record it. That is just as important for making the whole process work. That's right. And, and importantly for folks too, like it, when you have the feedback loops of the reports and the visualizations, that's where you get the buy-in of, oh, this is important. Like, if we're doing research in isolation and, you know, we send out a memo or whatever that, hey, the research institute staff really needs these data because it's important and we, we assure you it's very important. You know, folks aren't really going to change their behavior, right? There has to be some sort of um, skin in the game organizationally for um, these systems to improve. And that's where we saw the, both the gardening and the output of how they're using it themselves to inform their own processes. And synergistically, maybe from like a force multiplier perspective, it just so happens that we also leverage all that information for our outcomes program, for our research institute to answer more robust questions or some sort of null hypothesis significance test that might be published in a peer-reviewed journal. So I'm happy to maybe illuminate for some folks how that functions in our organization as well, if it might be helpful. I think it'd be super helpful. So maybe first, what are some core metrics that you are looking at? And then secondly, kind of building off of that, what are some of these hypotheses that you guys have been trying and what have you learned from them as you've continued to build out these tools and look at the data? Yeah, sure. So from an outcomes perspective, we took a very, well, we're a traditional legacy provider, if you will, in the Southeast part of this country. And so a lot of our history is grounded in a 12-step culture, which is significant and terrific, um, to be frank with you. But what's, what's interesting about that is that 12-step culture by way of treatment modalities, um, let me figure out how to say this most appropriately. I think that um, we need to celebrate our history, but we also need to invest in sort of um, evidence-based practices that might otherwise best help our patients over time. And both of those things are not mutually exclusive. We find that sometimes that there's this assumption that if we're doing this, then you can't be that. And so I think when I think about the first version iteration 
both national outcome measure scales, which are you know somewhat of a standard in behavioral health and psychological science broadly of patient activity and outcome, as well as outcomes related to um, recovery activity, right? And so some might equate that to the work that's been done by Coryville Saint and John Kelly out of the Recovery Research Institute in Boston. So what are the components um, or practices that individuals are participating in that support a positive recovery trajectory? So an example might be employment status, right? Which is both actually and a national outcome measure scale as well as a portion of recovery capital or community involvement, you know, as measured by meeting attendance, right? Those are things that we first took a look at. So meeting attendance, uh, use days, interactions with law enforcement. These are all things that we were trying to codify post-discharge in our outcomes program to better understand the trajectory of health for folks post-discharge, as well as uh, emergent medical events. That's another example that were really helpful and illuminating to help us understand, again, how people were changing after they left our programs. It's really easy to measure change when somebody's in treatment because they're there. You got them. It's a controlled environment for the most part, right? It's very difficult to do that work as folks leave and to really understand, you know, what's happening, not, not so that we can just report on it and celebrate it, but that we can improve and reflect our programs to better equip our patients with the skills that they might need once they leave treatment, right? And we, we kind of took the, the stance of, you know, if not us, who, right? So as an organization, we can't just wait for the academic journals, right? We just can't, we can't wait for our friends and other scientific domains to tell us about what's happening with patients and huge, large samples that might be coming from the federal government. We need to invest ourselves in our own data sources to answer these questions. So a few things that we found um, you might expect. So patients that are engaged longer in our programs, so basically length of stay as a function of the level of care, have better outcomes than those who are engaged for less time in treatment, right? Which is not a novel finding, but it's something that is grounded in our own data here at Cumberland Heights for those patients that have chosen us for treatment. And we actually have found a little bit of a sweet spot, which is reinforced by, you know, a few decades of work in NIDA and NIAAA, which is that 90 days of engagement, agnostic of level of care, which is interesting, we did not expect, agnostic of level of care, 90 days of consistent engagement in our health system and our programs elicits the best outcomes or the best odds for treatment success over time. So just a little particulars, because that's who I am, a scientist, is that's based on data in the past, right? So that's really a business intelligence finding, not necessarily a prescriptive future guarantee, right? That's kind of important. Just, you know, all research is based on a sample that was collected in the past, right? And so you can apply that information to a larger sample or population from a reliability perspective. But it's important just to note that these data represent the folks that have come through our programs over the last eight years. It's kind of where our data sources are coming from, from our electronic medical record to today, right? So that's that's one of the findings that we found that is really interesting. Another is how we compete against adverse treatment events, right? So folks that are leaning against medical advice or maybe have a behavioral discharge for whatever reason, you know, oftentimes you hear, well, or what I've heard working in different health you know, institutions is, well, the patient wasn't ready or they, whatever the reason might be, well, we, we haven't found that necessarily to be the case. And, and what I mean more specifically is that patients who have a higher acuity as a function of trauma, as an example, we've been doing a lot of work with trauma over the last 18 months, the patients who are scoring higher upon admission on our trauma screens and assessments have a, a higher odds risk for prematurely leaving uh, treatment, right? Again, agnostic of any other controlled predictor like gender or age or diagnosis, which was very interesting because you hear, or we have heard, you know, well, based on your age, you know, younger people have a tendency to do this and people who use opioids have a tendency to do that. And look, what we're finding is folks that have that acuity as a function of trauma need more we need to keep a closer eye in terms of support over those first few days as they sort of begin to integrate in any one of our programs. And that was so impactful and quite frankly, validating for some of our clinical teams to have that information and then to leverage it 
hey, based on our data, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I certainly those clinical discussions probably aren't too nerdy, right? But just sort of trying to normalize the experience of a patient grounded in some of our information and anecdote together and professional experience is probably the way that um, it's best leveraged. And again, it's just been really fruitful for us to sort of match our long-term assumptions with the reality grounded in our data. Does that make sense? Totally. And I love that example because it's exactly what we touched on earlier, where there is a gut feeling that, hey, maybe younger patients are leaving more often. But when you actually look at the data objectively, it turns out not to be the case. It turns out to be this trauma severity that is a larger indicator, a larger predictor. So this is one of the huge values of the data sets. And then even from a, a patient standpoint, you can have that conversation with patients and say, hey, look, you, you scored high in this trauma severity scale here. And just letting you kind of think through this, you are much more likely to leave earlier, but also according to our data, if you stay a full 90, you're much more likely to find recovery. So one, we're going to try and provide some extra supports for you. But two, we want you to be aware of that because what's going to happen is based on our data, you're going to start to feel like you need to go. (laughs) And that's very normal. And that's what we see all the time. You're at higher risk here. Think through this. Is this how you want to be approaching your treatment or how do you want to approach your treatment that's going to be most successful and beneficial for you? And I think that's so valuable for patients as well as the therapist to to know. Yeah. Yeah. And the beauty of it for us, it's all the same data system, right? So it's just another benefit. Again, those feedback loops referencing the learning healthcare network, it's all the same, right? It's just leveraging the same information across different channels throughout your enterprise that are able to really up your game. So I have a data nerd question for you, and I don't know if you can answer it, but if you look at the length of stay, for example, and you say, okay, well, people that stay 90 days are more likely to be successful in their recovery or better have better outcomes. Uh-huh. How do you remove the, the motivation or maybe starting point of, from a confounding variable standpoint, you know, are the people that are staying 90 days already more likely to be successful because they were more committed to the recovery? Can Great you question. tease that out in any way, shape or form? We can't tease it out, right? There's always bias in any analysis because there's humans involved, right? So any hypothesis you have, this is just great data science 101, right? Any hypothesis you have is riddled with bias because you already have assumptions about what's taking place. And that that's really what research is, is you have a data set and you're going to apply a model and you want to know how well is this model fitting the data set or not, right? And, and, and that's what a hypothesis significance test is telling you, right? Is this fit the data or does it not, right? So do I accept the hypothesis or do I reject it for those that spend time reading research articles? And so um, there's never a, a way to completely control for every variable, no matter the research method, even the quote gold standard, which might not be as gold when you start taking sort of a look behind the curtain, if you will, like a randomized controlled trial that we've all learned so much about in this era of pandemics, right? But, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do in a live clinical site. Like, for example, we would not randomize patients. This group receives treatment. This group doesn't. <laughs> like right. a placebo. Like, we wouldn't do that. So w- what we do here is a lot of quasi-experimental design for the nerds in the audience, right? Which just means that we're, ni- we're manipulating a live clinical site to observe what's taking place naturally, right? So we're not going to slice and dice folks um, as a function of the group. We're going to let treatment sort of um, our medical and clinical staff make decisions with the patients based on sort of the treatment doses that they need. And then we're going to take lots of great pictures along the way. And then, you know, once your N is large enough, which at this point, you know, have approximately half a million waves of unique patient data over the last four years. And so when your sample gets that large, you have what's known as high statistical power. And so that's able to eliminate some of the natural methodological uh, limitations that you might encounter if you're in graduate school and you have a sample size of 30, right? Does that make sense? So that is naturally a strength of our data sources that are helping us answer those questions. Yeah, it's so important to always remember the the amount of the data that you have and the length of the time that you're collecting as well, because there's such variability by time sometimes. That's right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah. So it's like, of course, folks that are prematurely discharging AMA might have worse outcomes because maybe they, you know, for whatever reason, weren't connecting with their therapist or their group. Right. So, so like, you're going to see that in your data. And so we have a lot of disclaimers and I have a great research staff here that does a good job of um, tempering 
because, you know, you hear all the time, you know, maybe from a C-suite perspective, you know, we want to know that our programs are effective. Okay. <laughs> well, let's take a step back. What exactly do you mean by effective? You know, how can we measure that? And so we take a pretty progressive look. Well, in fact, for those that are interested, you know, on our website every year, annually, we post an annual outcomes report, which tells you exactly what I'm talking about. So again, there's no secret. We tell you exactly what we measure, how we measure it, the tools we use, and the limitations of the observations that we've made over the last year and the years before. So we do that, Nick, not as a marketing gimmick, but we do that because we want to provide information directly in the hands of the consumers, the patients, and their families so that they can make informed decisions about treatments. I get really weary of reading reports or seeing visualizations that show successful metrics associated with abstinence or recovery. You know, 90% of our patients who go through our programs are successful. Well, what does that mean? We don't, we don't talk about outcomes that way. And all that can be seen online. Um, and we're really proud of that because consumers need to make, well, we feel like it's our, a part of our ethical responsibility to ensure that folks understand how we measure success and they understand the nuance and they understand maybe where our data sets are limited and where we have improvement to make. And we, we feel like trust is built there and that it's a reflection of the quality of our programs when we're, when we're kind of communicating with external stakeholders in that way. So um, that's kind of the exciting work that we're doing right now because it's the beginning of the year. Our teams are focused right now on crunching sort of an aggregate all of the data so that we can um, leverage it across all of our channels for folks to kind of have an update as to where our programs are. And the cool thing about that that you were alluding to earlier is, you know, the goals that we had related to measurement last year are often some of the goals that we have this year, but we're going to alter our sales based on what we learned and based on what we're curious about in the upcoming year. So it's a, it's a good, exciting time right now here at Cumberland. Everybody's waiting for us to get finished with a lot of our work here so we can kind of we'll have a big town hall and kind of communicate it's 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 become a really unique uh, culture of data and and inside of what some would consider to be a legacy provider you know and there there comes stereotypes with that right and so along this domain we're kind of breaking out of that which is cool I feel Cumberland Heights is incredibly innovative, especially around your data sets and the way that you guys are approaching evidence-based care because you're taking it to the next level where a lot of providers have just sat in the wings and said, well, we don't know how to start this or standardize this. And so we're just not going to start. You guys have really taken the bull by the horns. and I think it's phenomenal. So for all of the listeners out there, their report is available on their homepage. If you just go to the Cumberland Heights website, mm-hmm. and I'll also link to it in the podcast notes for anyone just listening from the, the website on our end. But I highly encourage you to check it out. The other thing I'll say, Nick, is just t- saying that just like for those that are listening, like that maybe feel disheartened, you know, based on where your organization is or whatever, you know, hey, we need you, you know, like we're excited to have you. There's room at the table, you know, and in fact, your voice is important that you're there because you're not there. And so we don't have your experience, you know, we don't have your insights, we don't have your curiosities. And so um, our experience, which has been really cool, we just had a, um, my leadership team had a strategic planning session this morning, we were talking about all these interesting connections we've had with external um, partners this year, folks that we're consulting with related to research, we're helping from a data management perspective, et cetera. Um, You and I talked about that a little bit, We've, we've done a lot of that work this year, and we've learned so much, you know, like, it's not just that that benefits the folks that we're helping. It also really benefits us. And it's part of the reason why I'm excited about force too. sort of a collective effort for everybody to sort of collaborate. Radical collaboration is what Annie and I talk about largely that, that there's more than enough room to, for everybody to be involved. Uh, let's see. Let's, let's take a look at that quick since you just mentioned it. So can you just mention force and, and tell the listeners a little bit more about it? Cause I'm sure a lot of people are aware, but I think it's an important initiative. And if you could just let everyone know the, the gist of it and how you guys are involved, I think it'd be helpful. Yeah, sure. So, um, force is the foundation for recovery science and education. Essentially about a year ago, the board of NATP um, was interested in investing in their own ability or the trade organization's ability to do quote research. And, and literally it started as a working group in uh, the hotel outside of Denver international airport in early 2020, <laughs> you know, what should we do? How should we do it? You know, we know we need to invest ourselves kind of, if not us who sort of vibe. And um, we had actually been doing an ongoing study with seven organizations at that time 
de-identifying data sharing in a repository. And and we went to the the group, the executive board, and I just said, hey, you know what? We've talked to the other groups that are a part of this. Just if you want it, take our IP, right? Take the process, the, not the content, like we were talking about earlier about how we're collecting data and sharing it in a repository of these other members, which we haven't really talked much about, but Force ended up adopting that. And now really what it is, is it's a, a de-identified data repository that's housed by the trade organization that approximately 60 different providers from across the field are plugging in their data as a function of API. And what's exciting about that is it's going to give our field and all on behalf of all of us, a collective voice grounded in data, you know, and we'll hopefully be able to leverage that with different stakeholder groups like payers or like the federal government to advocate on our behalf, right? Because we're really speaking in a language that the larger scientific field can't hear in, and that's anecdote. And so we need to speak in a language that makes sense for other fields of science, which is peer review, you know, and we can do that when we're collecting our data and getting those big samples. In fact, we, um, we're the analytics partner for FORCE, the Cumberland Heights Research Institute. And so we've been doing the end of the year research work with their staff to sort of crunch the numbers on the first. There's about a, um, 125,000 unique episodes of patient data across 60 organizations. And it's just a great resource. The other thing, it's 100% free to participate right now, right? So there's just, we've tried to take away all the barriers. You know, they raised a bunch of money, about $2 million. It's free to participate. There's no EPHI. Um, and it's just a great opportunity to kind of collaborate together and like I said, no one owns algebra, right? This is the time for us to sort of be collaborating together by way of being able to advocate for our programs. There's so many people that are affected by addiction and we, we really should be continuing to invest in that collective. And so it's an exciting time for sure. And if you want information, we can, we can probably include Dr. Peter's contact information about force and, and, and ATP um, in the episode. So yeah, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. I think, as you said, patients have a, a right, I think, to be able to somewhat objectively analyze programs and compare them. I mean, if we look at the standard healthcare space, most hospitals say, hey, here's our success rate on this cancer treatment, but we don't do that in behavioral health and lots of challenges and barriers to get it going. But you guys have led the way and forces another part of that project to really make this happen for patients and so that we can do the best for them that we, that we can possibly can. So I like that component of it. And then you were talking about some of the data sets and some communications between different staff. So something that we see happen all the time is a difference in expertise. And so people that have a really strong data background and can build a data warehouse and can build an API connection don't necessarily know the business metrics or the KPI. So the CEO will say, hey, can you give me the marketing dashboard and the marketing KPIs. And the data scientist goes, sure, we've got 400 fields here. Which of those 400 do you want? <laughs> and right. the CEO goes, yep. oh, the important ones. <laughs> so just maybe your experience on that in terms of how you help build that communication and then actually find the, the key fields and the key data points that were most valuable to provide actionable insights to the different teams. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it goes all the way back to what we were first talking about in terms of strategy in our organization to create really healthy partnerships with your stakeholders internally to your organization. So for example, I'm not a marketer. I'm not a business development professional, right? I'm a, I'm a data scientist. I'm actually a clinician by training, right? And so you need, to, you need to lean on the expertise of your folks within your organization to help them guide you in the questions that are most relevant and important. But what I do find is it, it takes time because you have to build that relationship. But not only that, you have to, in a way, maybe transcribe their wisdom, right? Because oftentimes somebody will say, I want to be able to answer this question. And you kind of have to walk through with them. Okay, well, we, we can't answer that question or we can because we're missing this data or we have that data, right? Does that make sense? And so it really does take a partnership um, from an organization high level perspective to get with those folks and make sure that their expectations will be met and that it's grounded in the reality of your data today. And if it's not, that you make plans to address it in the future. We've had many, many, many examples of that where we were 
we couldn't answer a question and we knew it was going to be important for us in the future. And so we altered our programs, our measurement programs to make sure that it was, we could, we could obtain that information in the future. So relationships are so, so, so important. Yeah. Yeah. A great example would be like alumni on our end. You have an AMA, but why did that AMA happen? And there's often differences between a seven day versus a more than seven day AMA or AMAs that happen during the weekday versus the weekends. And if you don't have those data sets being collected appropriately, then you're not able to answer the question. So by working with the team, you can say, okay, well actually, can we start to refine and get more nuanced with this data and then see if there are impacts, weekends versus weekdays, seven days versus post seven days. And it really helps you answer questions more effectively. That's exactly right. And it's just, it's just about making sure that you're um, able to collaborate at such a high level that you're in it, it. Like you said earlier, it's just, you, you got to start somewhere. And so where we started four years ago is light years different than where we are today. And the questions have changed a little bit. And, and sometimes folks didn't know the questions that they needed to ask, but again, based on the maturity of the programs now and sort of maybe folks seeing what's capable, what's not capable. It's even created an, an, um, an atmosphere of curiosity in some ways where folks come to the table now into the year or quarter when we're reviewing KPIs or whatever, what have you, and saying, you know what, I've been really thinking about this problem and I'm hopeful that we can solve it. You know, is it possible for us to measure this and answer that question? So you're exactly right. That's such an interesting comment because the meta research is kind of showing that if you start implementing data tracking, then that seems to have a very positive effect. And that's probably one of the pathways that you have a positive effect is it increases the curiosity, increases the ability of the team to measure progress or detraction. So yeah, I appreciate that comment. That's really good. Yeah. One last question, then we'll kind of wrap things up here. So just, uh, I don't know if you were willing to share the kind of cost range, if a provider wanted to do what you are doing, what might be a ballpark cost on an annual basis for them to implement it from staffing to databases to everything else? Uh, that's a big number, Nick. <laughs> um, yeah. And right. it's not, I'll say this, it's not something that the organization sort of from one day to the next said, okay, we'll take that on as an investment, right? That, that's not at all how that occurred. Um, so I would say, I'll answer it in two parts. I'll be as transparent as I can be with our own practices. And then I'll sort of illuminate what I think would be a good starting place that folks could consider. So for us, where we are today, annual spend, when you think about hardware, software costs and people, you're talking about half a million dollars, right? That's, that's a, that's a big cost, right? Um, Where you can start is probably a hundred, you know, and that's, I'm talking about one FTE and a few systems that might exist that might not in terms of visualization tool for you to get started that will hopefully allow your organization to learn. You know, that's the thing. Once you get started, I think most folks will will start to it'll be iterative in the sense of you'll it'll be a kind of a proving ground. Oh, we made this investment and here just like any investment. Like there is risk involved. So we're going to make an investment because we think it's going to yield X, Y, or Z, right? In terms of insights, in terms of productivity, in terms of process improvement. And from that, if it goes well and you're situated appropriately, it will continue to make investments. I mean, what do you and I both know? Technology is not going away. And so our ability to leverage that information, let me put it to you this way. Our future ability to advocate for ourselves will be entirely grounded in our data. And so the organizations that are making progressive investments today to codify and wrangle and leverage that information internally will be those that have an advantage tomorrow just to be able to answer those very simple questions. Who are patients? What treatments did they, were they provided? And what outcomes did we observe? That's exactly right. There's so much you can do with that data. I think, number one, we all know that you can improve patient care. Eventually, Improved patient care is always going to lead to a stronger revenue position for a variety of reasons, right? Payers, reputation, patients coming back. But it can be as simple as your AMAs or it can be as simple as your step-down rates. If you start to get data around that, understand where gaps are and then improve on those and you reduce your AMA numbers, you improve your step-down rates, that has a very significant financial impact. So I would just encourage anyone listening that the investment is worth it. (laughs) It always comes back when we really look at 
understanding the underlying metrics of the business and the clinical care models. I've never seen someone lose money on it. And we're more than happy, not just me, but, you know, any, any individual on my leadership team, because we've been on this journey together, you know? And so it's, of course, I'm the guy, the big champion in our organization, if you will, but there are so many other folks that have been able to leverage these systems by way of positive output in their program or their responsibility. So there's a ton of ways that we can collaborate. And if people are interested in learning more, you know, about those hard numbers or about those strategies from a C-suite perspective or also an entry-level staff perspective, you know, it touches everybody. And and we're more than willing to have those conversations to take a meeting and to help out because it matters because those folks that are, we, we care about those folks that are choosing your program too, right? We care about anybody that's affected by addiction. And we want to make sure that we're here to support um, our friends and our colleagues. So it's all good. So on that note, if people wanted to contact you or Cumberland Heights, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, the very best way is email. And it's just Nick underscore Hayes at CumberlandHeights.org. And shoot me an email and we'll get you set up in the best way we know how. I really appreciate your time today, Nick. I'm so impressed with what you guys are doing. I wish you continued success as you build it out. And I highly encourage anyone listening to reach out to Nick or the team and learn more uh, because this benefits everyone. So thank everyone for joining today. This is Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.